I have to confess, friends, I've always been a worrier. I can remember at the age of 13, lying in bed and making a mental list of my worries. There was the maths homework I could never understand. There was the horrible prospect of, despite my aversion to spending 90 minutes running, running around chasing an oval ball around a muddy field, getting absolutely filthy, I might, I might get drafted into the school rugby team. And then there was the rising panic that I felt when I heard my parents arguing downstairs and I wondered when they would come to the point of deciding to separate. Now, I don't want anyone to think that I had an unhappy childhood. I didn't. I had a blissfully happy one. But you see, I've always been the sort of person who's thought of the worst outcome so that when the worst doesn't happen, I have a pleasant surprise. Does that resonate with anyone? The problem is, of course, for some people, the, the surprise isn't always very pleasant. Because there are people in our community who have real worries, not just aversion to getting dirty playing rugby. It's supposed to be getting colder at the end of the week. There are people who will worry, can I turn up the thermostat? Can I afford to keep the central heating on for an extra hour each day? Can I pay for the children's school trip? Will my name be on the next list of compulsory redundancies when it's announced? Real, real worries. Now, from January the 1st, we've been following a series, with one or two exceptions, on dealing with practical problems in the Christian life. And I suppose this is because, with my impending retirement coming, I'm wondering whether I've been blethering for the last 40 years and perhaps I ought to start talking about real, real problems and how God's word can minister to us in those problems. So this morning we're going to think about how a Christian copes with anxiety. And it, it, it is a sermon for believers. I, I want to try to show you how our faith really works. It's not just pie in the sky when you die. And of course the first thing to be said is that we shouldn't worry at all. Because we have the Lord Jesus' words, don't we, in verse 30, sorry, verse 25 of Matthew 6. He says, I tell you, do not worry. And then again in verse 34, he says, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each, each day has trouble enough of its own. Now, you can't deny that that's pretty sound advice. But the trouble is it's very difficult to follow. So I want to link that reading with some well-loved words from Philippians chapter 4 because it seems to me that these words unpack what Jesus is saying. And if you have a Bible open, turn to page 1181 and uh, look with me through those verses. That's what we're doing this morning, verses 4 to 7. <coughs> First of all, the chapter opens uh, with Paul's appeal to two members of the fellowship to bury the hatchet. Well, that having been done, he turns 
to the first part of the strategy to deal with worry. And in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, let me say straight away, this is not the Christian equivalent to that mournful ditty from Monty Python's pathetic film, The Life of Brighton, uh, Brian. rather. Always look on the bright side of life. There's much more to it than that. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And the last three words are crucial. He isn't saying rejoice because it's a sunny day or rejoice because your mother-in-law's finally taken the hint and gone home after spending the Christmas with you. He's not saying that. He's saying rejoice in the Lord. And that has a number of ramifications. It means that you are in Christ, that you have a new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. It means you are forgiven and accepted as a child of God. It means that you are an heir of eternal life. And all that wretched destructiveness of sin has nothing to do with you any longer. I was talking to a young man yesterday evening. No one you will know, nothing to do with this congregation, seeking to help him. And I was asking him about his background, about his parents, where he came from. And he spoke about his grandmother and his mother. But he didn't speak about his father. And I um, probed a little deeper. I said, and, 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 and your dad? Oh, he said, uh, my, my dad left before I was born. He said, of course, my parents weren't married at the time, so I suppose that makes me a bastard. And I said, look, I said, forget that word. That is not what defines you. What defines you is the fact that you are a child of God. That's what defines you. That's who you really are. You are a child of God. Now, of course, our spiritual enemy wants us to forget that. He wants us to lie in bed if we're 13 or 33 and worry and fret about what we've done in the past and how it cancels out God's love for us. We were singing earlier on in the 9.30 service a wonderful song that uh, one of our worship leaders, David Goodchild, has actually written. And the chorus has a line, I cannot be lost to you. I cannot be lost to you. And I was saying how grateful I am for that song because it encapsulates, that one line encapsulates the doctrines of grace, the fact that we have been grasped by the grace of God and nothing and no one can take us out of his hands. I cannot be lost to you. But of course, our, our, our spiritual enemy wants us to believe we can. And he wants us to worry about that above all things. That's why our Saviour told us not to worry, because worry saps our spiritual energy, drains our reserve of faith. Instead of eating our hearts out about all the things that might or might not happen, let's remember what has already happened, that Christ has paid the price for our sins. He's opened heaven's gate, and nothing and no one can deny us the right to go in. You see, we've got to possess our possessions in Christ. We've got to rejoice in the Lord. And this reminds me of an illustration I heard years and years ago in a sermon about an elderly lady who had a wonderful collection of silver. And it was kept in a cabinet downstairs 
Sadly, she was bedfast and she wasn't able to go downstairs. The only person who ever saw and handled this collection of silver, this gleaming, beautiful, dazzling collection of silver, was the maid who each week opened the cabinet, took out each piece carefully, cleaned it and put it back. Now, who possessed? Who possessed that silver? Was it the lady upstairs who never saw it? Or was it the maid who each, each week handled it, was dazzled by its beauty? We've got to possess our possessions, haven't we? I've told you before about Billy Bray. Billy Bray was um, just an ordinary working man in Cornwall when he was converted by John Wesley and he used to dance down the street doing cartwheels, shouting, I'm Billy Bray, I'm the son of a king. And he, he was the son of a king. And you and I are sons and daughters of the king of kings. Remember who you are. Then in verse 5, Paul urges us to bear two things in mind. First of all, let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, that word gentleness can also mean reasonableness or great-heartedness, magnanimity. It's, it's a kind of generosity, really. One of the things that makes my toes curl um, is awful puns on church notice boards. Um, we never have puns on our posters outside. Never, ever, ever. At least if we do, they always have a gospel punch. So they're absolutely wonderful. But one I remember from my student days which did not have a gospel punch was cringe-making in the extreme. A man wrapped up in himself is a very small parcel. Well, now, cringe-making it may be, but there is an element of truth there. If we become absorbed with ourselves, it shuts us off from everybody else. And this is what Paul is telling us to in to avoid. Let your gentleness, your generosity, your magnanimity, your great-heartedness be evident to all. That's the first thing in verse 5. And then in verse 5, there's something even better. The Lord is near. You know we ought to be living every moment in the expectation of the Lord's return. Isn't it wonderful news that as Acts 17.31 says, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And when you look at the world and you grieve, as perhaps you do, as I do, you know that one day, one day, the final whistle will be blown. That was the moment of the rugby match that I enjoyed most of all, right at the end, when those three blasts on the whistle would go, one, two, three, oh, glory. Well, one day, sorry, Aubrey, uh, but one day, that final whistle will be blown because the Lord is near, and that day is coming closer every moment. Hallelujah. Now, verse 6. This is the crucial verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. He's saying what Jesus said, isn't he? Do not be anxious about anything. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Do not worry about tomorrow, etc., now, learning to be a minister is a long road, and there are some lessons that you have to learn over and over again. Not because you forget them, but because they go against the natural course of human behavior. When I see a problem, my natural reaction is to solve it. <laughs> I have certain gifts, so I go in and I try and sort everything out. And often my attempt ends in miserable failure. 
And I learn again what I should have learnt years ago, that when a problem presents itself, I've got to take it to my Heavenly Father and ask Him to tell me what He wants me to do about it. Because He may have someone else who can more effectively solve the problem. Or He may get the person who is causing the problem to solve it themselves. <laughs> I shall always be grateful for the lovely lady elder in my first pastorate who after a difficult meeting would gently take me aside and quietly whisper, pray about it, pray about it. And then she would quote, all your anxiety, all your care, bring to the mercy seat, leave it there, never a burden he cannot bear, never a friend like Jesus. And that's the reality of our faith. But do we believe it? Do we believe that God is concerned about every detail in our lives? The Bible says that he is. 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, I won't mention his name for fear of embarrassing him, but there's a young man who's recently started to come to church with his wife and little boy. And uh, he's a self-employed builder. And from November last year, he hasn't had any work. And you can imagine how anxious that would make him feel. We prayed for him very especially in our pastoral meeting. Sunday following, he came to church with a great big smile on his face. He'd got a job, and it was just the job that he wanted. Now, that doesn't mean that we can treat God like an ATM. You know, stick your faith in the slot, punch out your favorite hymn number, and hey, presto, you'll get what you want. It means that we, we need to trust God to care for us, to be alongside us in the midst of our anxiety. Maybe the problem will not be solved. Like the young man who got the job he wanted. On the other hand, maybe there's something we need to learn by waiting for an answer because wait is just as much an answer or not in this way. I remember a wonderful quotation from um, Amy Carmichael. And she says, can we trust God to give us, in answer to our prayers, this sentence? No, not in this way, but wait. Because when I fulfill my will in you, you will see that this is a far, far better thing. Can we trust him to show us that? And our, 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 our prayers have got to be bathed in gratitude, haven't they? In everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. We can't make demands of God. We can't insist on doing what we want. Neither can we make bargains. You know, if you answer my prayer, I'll increase my weekly giving by 3% above the level of inflation. No, I'm sorry, that won't work. We've got to give him our anxieties, remembering the love and mercy we've experienced in the past. And verse 7, the final verse in the section, is the icing on the cake. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And it's in those 
Four words which transcends all understanding that the key to the verse lies. Because anxieties don't go away. We don't deny that they still exist. But when we pray in the way that Paul describes here with gratitude and total trust, we experience a peace which goes beyond anything that mere human reason could supply. And there's something more. This peace will guard your hearts and your minds. The Greek word means to stand guard, to protect. And that speaks to the core of our need, doesn't it? Because anxiety and fear are much akin. They spring, indeed, from one another. Anxiety comes because you're afraid. We have no reason to be afraid. No reason whatsoever, because we're in the hands of our loving Heavenly Father every moment of every day. I don't know whether you've heard of Mother Julian of Norwich, famous for her revelations of divine love. They were visions given to her when she lived as an anchoress in Norwich in the 12th century. Just in case you think she lived a life divorced from the pain and suffering of the world, closeted in her cell, let me put you straight, she had what she called her window on the world. And from it she dispensed counsel to anyone and everyone who came to her. She lived in daily contact with people's anxieties and cares. And yet she was able to say, all shall be well. And all manner of thing shall be well. And that's no pious wish. It's the down-to-earth certainty that God will keep his word forged from a life lived in the experience that he does. Amen.